Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello, and welcome to this segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is a digital operating model that delivers results. So the premise is that digital is no longer a cool idea. And it's not just about we doing great things with marketing or having that wow customer experience. While those things are also important, but there's also about building good products, the whole product development process, the production of whatever products and services you uh, offer, the service operations, talk about supply chain and even internally the experience that our employees have as part of delivering whatever they are delivering. So all of that needs to be reimagined if we want to leverage digital to the fullest extent. Does that mean we just make those 30,000 feet view uh, strategies or should we go about actually digging into the nitty gritties of the way we used to operate our business earlier and now with digital, we actually build a specific digital operating model and put it in action. So to, to discuss all that, I have with me Sanjay Patel. Sanjay is the CIO at Tate and Lyle. Hi Sanjay, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks Joe. Hi listeners. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Now, let's dig right in. So when we are looking at digital, and yes, we will get into the digital operating model, but then within that, we also have to identify the channels which we would be best utilizing or for, for making sure that they get the appropriate customer experience knowing that our competitors are doing the same, or for that matter, we had to evolve so that they, we attract new customers and retain them. How do you go about identifying such channels? No, I think there's, there's probably at least two, two tracks that, that most companies take. Um, the, the first one is it, it depends on what industry uh, that you're in. So if you're in retail, which is the, probably the best known space or business to consumer space, then you sort of have to understand two dimensions. First one is who are your customers and what are their buying habits? Therefore, what, what channels should you use to engage them? We have the traditional bricks and mortar, but then we have e-commerce. We also then have you know, e-commerce going into, into, into different channels uh, as we get into social media. So, so what, first one is understanding your customers and then leveraging all the channels that your customers are, are, are intervening with. And the second one, to your point about reimagining, is really having a future view that says, well, what technologies are going to enable different channels as we go forward? So whether you're talking about contact lenses that allow you to see things near real time, whether you're talking about VR, whether you're talking about through gaming, um, there are technologies that allow new channels to be looked at. And that's one of the areas where digital natives are looking at. And that would be my suggestion on the second area to look at is what's happening in your space? What are your peers and competitors doing? And uh, as I indicated a little while ago, your competitors could be your existing competitors or they could be digital natives who aren't encumbered by bricks and mortar but can actually come to market much faster. So I'd say those are the two things that you need to look at from a channel perspective. What are your customers doing? What could they do in the future? And what are your peers and existing and new competitors doing? 
Could I hash this out in a half an hour discussion among my peers or is there more to it? So what did you do in your organization? What did your, who all got together and what all you did you discuss? What data points you saw missing, which you went outside, which sources did you use to find so that you could get to that discovery or rather that decision on the best channels that are possible for you to engage with your customers? Well, firstly, I wish we could just sit in a room for half an hour and thrash this out. So it's, it's clearly a little bit more than that. So, so look, we started with uh, a couple of things. Firstly, you know, what, what was our strategy? What, what company did we want to be typically in the next five to ten years out? Um, and we're, we're, we're still, you know, continuing that journey to say what possible scenarios could exist in the world five to ten years out? Because there isn't just one scenario that would come true. Uh, and that gives us food for thought about the various opportunities that digital or different channels or different customers or different uh, business models would, would, would expose to, to us. And then we work back from that to say, of those various scenarios, which are the ones that we think that we should be placing some bets on, putting some money and investment into, um, and making them real and tangible. So if you, I'll give you a real example. Um, we're, we're a business-to-business um, operating model, so we sell um, between us and uh, other companies who then sell to consumers. So we sell food ingredients into food ingredient ma- into food manufacturing companies, um, be they the sort of PepsiCo's, Coca-Cola's, or Nestle's, or uh, Unilever's of the world, and they are then selling through retailers into consumers. So we're a number of steps away from the end consumer. So we've been reimagining what could that world look like in five to ten years' time, and therefore what are the choices that we need to be making in terms of better collaboration with our customers so that we've got more transparency between what we're making as ingredients, what they're making as products, what retailers are selling on their shelves and what consumers are buying, and what are those trends, and then how do we invest into those trends? So if people are more into plant-based protein or plant-based materials, how are we going to shorten the time it takes us to get into that space? Uh, And that's where my earlier point about looking at new technologies and looking at what our digital natives could do comes in. So that's the process we followed. Look out into the future, decide what those scenarios could be, pick some that we should be investing in now, and then start on that digital journey. So let's talk about the underlying processes, because a lot of people say, okay, let's slap digital as a bunch of tools, but they do not rethink or at least tweak what business processes should be in order to best leverage digital or, for that matter, use the advent of digital as an opportunity to look at many of those processes which have been running, which may not be the most efficient or might be causing leakage or not allowing you the flexibility you you know, need. How did you go about getting the people who are supposed to be owning those business processes who may be typically sitting as, as a business unit leaders or even at business user level? How would you go about influencing? And I'm not saying you alone. I'm sure you got blessings as well as support from your business unit leaders. So how, how did your organization go about uncovering the leakages and then saying, you know what, we're not going to pause our business, but we, we might try to figure out a way to change the tires of a moving vehicle. And that too at uh, a deep yeah. level. Well, that's, that's the, the, the essential conundrum for an organization continuously transforming, which is how do I run business as usual whilst transforming at the same time? So, so in our particular case, we'd started the journey a while ago, not necessarily for digital, 
the, in terms of having a joined up set of business processes enabling our business. Typically, that's an ERP solution, an enterprise resource planning solution. We, we've been down the SAP journey for a number of years, and that helped us to embed the core business processes, predominantly around financial processes, so that we could run our business. And over time, we've been, been looking at some of the other business processes that would underpin the changes that we're making. So if I talk about customer-facing processes, what are the processes that we're going to help with our sales teams so that they have information in their hands to be able to go talk to our customers at our value proposition? What are the processes that we're looking at for our supply chain so that we can show our customers that we're delivering on time in full? And the way we've organized that from a business and IT perspective is we have uh, uh, dedicated business super users. We have a network around that own those particular business processes. So whether that's report to record or whether that's order to cash or procure to pay, we have those people in the business and they have a very tight partnership with ISIT. Um, And between us, we define new projects where we're talking about either automating or enabling or transforming a business process and continuous employment, which we put through an enhancement process. So smaller changes we put through currently on a monthly basis so we can be agile in getting those changes out in the market and then bigger changes we run as projects and we'll run those you know cradle to grave in terms of a start a discovery make the change automate it and then go into business as usual so we're running two tracks continuous improvement on the one hand projects on the other hand but a partnership between business process owners and ISIT so I'm sure nothing at least I've seen in my lifetime of almost 50 years that nothing has been a smooth sailing boat we are lucky at times, but at the same time, we have to get through some surprises, some stumbling blocks. Which were, what were some of those um, issues that you did not uh, see coming? Or what did you know that's going to come and how did you get over for you to be able to do it? So I know there's a change management is, is a huge thing. A lot of things happen. But when you went through your journey about trying to change the business processes, did you somehow sometimes feel that you, you don't need to, you might be over engineering it? Or you felt that even a simplest thing is taking the longest time and the ROI of making that change is not going to be worth it. What are some of your learnings in this process? I think I think it's all of the above. Um, so look, we're still on the journey. I'm I, I, naive to think that we're at the end of the journey, um, but they are things that sort of people know about and some surprises. So let, let me give you some examples. So things that people know about. Change is hard. Okay, when you're trying to run a business and people are used to running the business a particular way, and you're trying to introduce something different, we have, we've 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 learned that we've had to put a lot of effort into changing change and and communication. So, we created a, a center of expertise, and we could learn about how do you make change happen in Tate and Lyle. Because making change happen in one company is actually, on one hand, similar to other companies, but it's also different because the cultural norms, ways of working, hierarchy, remuneration are all different. So we've invested in change management and communications to help people on that change journey. That's one thing that we didn't start with, and we had to learn and build that capability. The second one is that because we're running information technology, the data 
is always been and continues to be a challenge. And data is a big topic, um, but if I give an example, if, if I want to start looking at my customers through the various channels that I'm delivering to, and I want to look at them through the lens of my regional business, but I also want to look at them through the lens of my product business or the categories that my product work in, so beverages as a category, sweeteners in beverages as a product, then I have to slice and dice data. And I have to rely that that data is clean and maintained. That continues to be a challenge, and we've worked hard at putting governance in place, tooling in place, and education in place, whilst putting time in place on the project so that we can make sure that data is, is being clean and maintained. And the third one, given that we're balancing running a business which is growing and extremely successful, and at the same time wanting to reduce lots of changes, is how do we prioritize? How do we make sure that we're putting the right things on the innovation topics alongside business as usual. And that's about business case, that's about change load, and that's about time to value. So we've had to get more rigorous at our portfolio and project management in terms of where should we make investments and when should we make those investments in line with our business cycle. So three examples there of some of the challenges that we continue to have and some of the um, investments or changes that we've had to make in building capability to address them. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's look at the possibility of the organizational structure change that we should make in order for it to be optimum utilization of the human resources and also determine what all other resources that we need to have at our disposals at all times. So we need to have human resource working at their best capacity, the reporting and the communication should be most effective, and the right type of resources at the right time are available to them so that the digital dream is realized. How do you make that all happen? And that too as a smooth sailing boat. Please stay tuned listeners, we'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Sanjay, I met a few leaders very recently, and they claim that they have the best people. But then they don't know if they are being utilized properly. The reporting structure is proper. And every day that person comes in, that person doesn't know whether they are going to be working on things which will help them grow as individuals because everyone is thinking at all times, what's in it for me? And then they have issues with resources, which either there's a feast or famine. Either they have got way too many licenses of technology or other resources at their disposal, or they have nothing and they're stalled. And this is not the news which is new for most organizations. So if someone is to 
literally build their digital operating model where things move at a speed of light almost, what would you do to have that organizational structure, the the right expectation and the training levels and availability of resources so everything flows as expected, or at least we, we continue to grow in the dire- direction we want to? Um, look, there's a few things, and John, I wish it was an easy uh, question, particularly for, th- for those businesses like, like ours, who are 160 years old, where you know we, we have a legacy, but we also are a very people-based business with bricks and mortar, and we have a manufacturing base. And, and the reason I make that is if, if you're in a business that's physical, uh, which relies on people, then I think there's a few things that you can you can help the situation. I'm not sure you can solve it to be sort of digital at the speed of light. But let me let me give some examples of things that you can help. The first one is to be very clear. What, what's the purpose of the company? Uh, and we spend a lot of time um, being very clear from a, from, a, from a very high level down to detail. Why do we exist? And, and, our, and our purpose is really about improving lives for generations. And the reason for that is it, it sort of, it paints a picture of what this company is really about. And therefore, if that's something that matters to you, it's a company that you want to belong with. And you'll put up with some of the challenges in the company, whether it's structure um, or hierarchy or otherwise, but making it real. Improving lives for generations for me is about, through food ingredients, making sure that food ingredients are helping to solve some of the biggest problems on the planet, be that obesity or type 2 diabetes or some of the uh, gut health problems that people have. And with 7 billion people, that's a big proposition that we can be working towards. And then my part in that is helping to make sure that technologies are helping the people in Tate and Lyle to work with their customers and consumers to go towards that goal. That I'm also providing improved lives for generations for the people that work at Tate and Lyle, that their working life is good and effective. And when they come to work, they don't complain about the technology, but they're saying, hey, this is helping me do my job. So I use that as one example of something that really helps to motivate people to come and stay and put up with some of the relatively minor, for some people, major issues around organization structure, roles and responsibilities and otherwise. And on the second hand, we're also, we have also done a lot of work around getting clarity on roles and responsibilities, decision rights. What is it that you've got decision rights for in your role and where do the other decisions get made so that people find it easier to navigate the company um, and, and, and get their job done. And the last point is, I would say this as a CIO to make sure that the technology allows people to get things done quickly. So if you're in sales, to have you know one place where you go to do all of your work. In our case, we're using a sales cloud solution to do that so that salespeople don't have to go into multiple places to try and do their job and to give them the information that they need to do their job. So there's three examples in a bricks-and-mortar business. Now, the reason I use that analogy is in some cases where you're a digital native company, it's easier because you don't have that encumbrance to create a culture and environment that's much more nimble and agile. Um, we're not in that world, and you know some of those companies. They tend to be the, the tech companies who provide an, a working environment for the millennials to come, flexible working hours, ping-pong table tennis, um, you know, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the two paradigms that I would cite that sort of help to you know, deal with the people element of, uh, of, of the challenge of digital. Now, what, you, what your response is spot on. Now, one thing I do ask is like from your vantage point as a CIO, you are providing the tools and technologies and uh, so, so for, for your people, of course, and for the business uh, users and unit leaders who are trying to make their own decisions. But when we talk about uh, a shift 
for building it as a digital-oriented company, which means these changes in organizational structure has to happen across the board. It's, it's Yeah, you can have HR go in and support. Maybe you get from outside consultants. But if it is so fluid, it cannot be a snapshot approach. I'm not saying you're going to change the org structure every day. So whether it's your department or any other department, what is the approach that's been taken? And yes, uh, technology will have a role in giving the insights, but what was the experience in doing something like this? When you tried to change the org structure or realign everything, given that you mentioned it's like over a 100-year-old company, what challenges did you face? And how did you um, overcome them? Look, a couple of things. Um, whilst I'm the CIO now, I actually came into Tate & Lal a few years back to lead the transformation um, as the head of strategic transformation. And I came in because we needed someone inside the company who had transformation experience to do exactly what you cite. We had a strategy. We knew where we needed to get to. We then needed to turn that strategy into tangible things. And one of those tangible things was to change the organizational structure and change the capabilities of people uh, in the organization. So what we did was we set up a program of work. We got our arms around all of the initiatives that were pointing in the direction of the strategy but weren't necessarily being organized and joined up so that they all hit the same goal. We spent a lot of time, and I spent a lot of time on change and comms to communicate to people, guys, we're headed this way, here's the rationale for doing that, and here's why these initiatives join up together to head that way. I created a program structure. We created seven work streams. Each one of those was very clear what the outcome was, what was the target state. We had business leaders in each one of them, and we had an orchestration. So I created a community of people that were driving those changes across those seven initiatives. So, again, that's a structure we put in place. Um, we then, over time, handed that into the business. So rather than having projects and initiatives, those same seven leaders are running parts of our business and they're continuing to embed those changes that we talked about as part of our, our structure, part of which is the organizational changes. We defined what the organizational changes needed to be, function by function. We had an integration plan so that we meant one function wasn't tripping over another function when they were making their changes. And then we orchestrated the change in communication associated with that organizational change. We built competency models. We knew what new capabilities and competencies we needed in which communities of people. And then we did retraining for individuals that were capable of going on that capability journey. And inevitably, we had to change some people that uh, either didn't fit in the new structure or didn't have the ability to change their capabilities associated with that. Um, by the way, I did the same in ISIT as well. So that's only latter, but we, we did that at an enterprise level across all of the functions. So for the listeners um, who may be trying to do something similar, you came from strategy and transformation background, of course. You knew that there will be some shifts required, and you'll have to put the effort in and then correct course. Now, when I talk to a lot of people and I, I hear them talk, a lot of people sound like tired warriors. Or they would say, it is still going on. It's, it's, it's not easy, but then there is no... Um, confidence or less confidence than I would expect in a leader. So when, when since you did it from both IT and from business standpoint, and you tried to work on the work stream creation and the organizational, uh, organizational structure related and change management initiatives, what would be your advice to people who do not feel that they are in control? They're doing things. Maybe there's a playbook they have, 
but results will not come exactly the way they would expect or they will have to keep do keep doing the course correction but the confidence is not at the top level that yes this is going to eventually I'll, I'll nail it eventually what's your message to people like them uh, look, I think I, I can only personalize this. Um, I think there's a couple of things I, I, I would say. One is to the, to the weary warrior. You do have to be, in my opinion, a particular type of person to lead and drive these sorts of changes. Um, I use some characteristics, right? I'm, I'm, I'm more often than not glass half full. You have to have that level of optimism and can-do attitude. And I'm not saying people don't, but that's the... That's the construct of person you have to be. You also have to be a relationship person, certainly in larger organizations. Um, whilst we would love it that the CEO decides and everything happens, the reality is even if the CEO decides, there's still a lot of heavy lifting and work to do. And I found that building relationships and building networks is a much better way of going because uh, it's a lonely place being the one person that's trying to make transformation happen. So I build networks, I build credibility. And then the third element is get some quick results. Because if you can demonstrate that going into that direction, you can show people rather than tell and preach and try to convince, show them that some small things work. And usually the small things are solving some of today's problems. Because strategically, if you want to be a digital business, you're wanting to be more agile and therefore faster at solving today's problems such that you can actually face into tomorrow's opportunities. But if you could solve some of the problems early on, which is one of the things that I, I spent my time doing in the early days, um, and have a cadence for doing that, every 90 days we're going to solve a bunch of problems. Every 90 days we're going to solve a problem. It could be 90 days, it could be 30 days. depends on the rhythm in your business. I found those three things help you. Class half full, be a particular type of person who's okay with ambiguity, okay with being patient and waiting and okay, we're just carrying on and being determined. Build a network because then you can build some like-minded people and then there's an army of you rather than just one of you and then get some quick wins under your belt to demonstrate that the journey is worth going on. That, that would be my advice to others out there that, you know, like me, have been on the journey for a while. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and let's talk about the foundational infrastructure. It could be a physical infrastructure or IT infrastructure that you would need to be, you know, uh, to be established before or rather in parallel to you running this digital journey or to build build your digital operating model, which will make your company successful. What would that look like? And another question, or rather tweak to that question is that we almost never have all the resources or rather in terms of dollars to invest in having that infrastructure when we need them. So are there any creative strategies as part of you building that foundation, which you know we you need, but you don't have all the money to put all the investment up front? Can you keep building the car and riding it at the same time? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. 
Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sanjo Gall. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Sanjay, talk about physical and IT infrastructure that one would have to put in place as a foundation. And two things come here. One is how does one determine what would be enough given even the definition of digital and the customer expectations and what you would want to put in place keep shifting. And second is the resource constraint. There's always going to be resource constraint. And does it make sense for someone to put all the investment up front or put something partially and see where it takes you and then you do incremental investment. So thinking about building a foundation itself could be an animal and has to be done creatively and done wisely for it to create the most value. What would be what what would the chapter on this in your playbook say? Look, so John, so this is this is a this is a big topic, and and maybe if I split it into two parts to to address your question, when you say physical, okay, so again, we're a manufacturing company, so if you, if you're making things, as you can imagine, there's a significant investment needed to put equipment down on the ground in order to you know drive growth and drive the uh, the proposition for for customers and consumers. That 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 has to have a very robust capital plan associated with it. And there's a risk appetite, right? I put a physical plant on the ground today, and then in five years' time, I don't need it. So that's got to be a very robust process, and it's determined by clarity on the long-term demand for that particular product or set of products, confidence that the market will continue to move that way, um, and also risk appetite in terms of... um, you know, there's not, once you've built the equipment, there's not much you can do with it. So that's, so that's on the physical side. And I won't dwell on that because that's a well-trodden path for anyone who, who manufactures. Let, let me talk about IT infrastructure, though. Not because I'm the CIO, but I, I think there there's a lot more levers you can pull because as as everyone knows, as the move to cloud happens across all the layers of IT, it's a much, relatively speaking, easier plug-and-play model. And therefore, it's easier to take a foundation that's physical, physical data center as an example, and move that to a more fungible, a more flexible uh, resource pool uh, using cloud. Similarly for an application layer, whilst we've spent time in the past on-premise and building equipment that's supported by physical infrastructure, much easier in this day and age to use cloud. Now, your, your secondary question was associated with it. So how do you decide because you have a limited resource? That's, that's a more difficult question. But what we've done, doesn't make it right, but it's working for us, is we've become very structured at uh, ensuring that we have a robust business case and therefore a financial return on every investment that we make in technology, whether it's infrastructure or whether it's application. And that's been a challenge for IIT function because they're used to saying, well, this is what the business wanted, so I'm going to do it for that reason. And this is what IT needs to stay, you know, keep the business running, so I'm going to do it that way. And I've changed that paradigm to say, no, everything needs a business case. 
And if we have to put some seed money in to do the work to build the business case, I'd rather do that. I'd rather spend, and I'm making the numbers up, a hundred bucks figuring out a business case than a million bucks on something that I don't know has a return. So we've had to change our IT processes and our IT mindset so that everything goes through a business case. What's helped us at one level is the fact that we've gone through a you know, significant cost reduction, and that's given us a mindset change. We went through zero-based budgeting, and that changes the paradigm to, well, the company's always got money. We just need to decide how to use it. So let me treat it like it was my money. Would I make these decisions about spending this money if I didn't know what the return was? And just that one example um, has helped us significantly in terms of being much crisper about what return we're getting on the investments that we're making. So if... If organizations who are working with this constraint and when they tell about their story about requesting investment, especially when IT people come and say, okay, we need to invest in IT, and they try to make a business case, they sometimes, or in many cases, they see resistance because IT is still struggling with that problem of not being able to connect an IT investment to a shareholder value or tangible value. How did you crack that problem? Look, at one level, and, and, I, and I don't mean to be um, you know, standing tall relative to some of our listeners, but I came from the business. I spent you know, a number of years shaping the transformation, so, so I had a much better insight as to what the business needed to do. But I also then changed my IT function so that there were more people in my IT function that were spending time with the business. So task number one is I don't believe in the IT's coming if asking for money. I believe in the we jointly between IT and the business understand what's going to drive value in the business, whether that's growth or cost reduction, and we jointly are clear what we need to do in terms of investments in order to get there. And therefore, there's a joint accountability for coming to the table and asking for investment dollars. That, for me, is a massive shift versus IT wants to do this technology because it's sexy or it's new or because everyone else is doing it. Um, that's, that's the biggest shift. And then putting some processes in place, some discipline, that even the business says, hey, I saw this great thing because someone else is doing it. Hey, IT, go deliver that for me. There's some rigor and challenges. They say, well, what are you going to do with it? How's that going to help make lives better? Or is that, how's that going to help you generate more value for the shareholders? And if you don't have the discipline for articulating that and working with me to do that, then you know what? We won't do it. So there are some tough yards to go through, but having a partnership with a business such that it's a joint proposition and then having the rigor to make sure that it's, it's based on value and shareholder return, I would say are the two biggest levers to pull for those that are facing the limited resource, because we all have limited resource, limited investment. So I like your response that you work with closely with business and always make a business case. Now, are you in a way saying that if you had the credibility, that is what is going to get you the money, and you are trying to legitimize uh, an investment based on who is pitching? And if it is collaboratively figured out as something which we should do, which could still be a leap of faith, but at least there are multiple people taking ownership versus a single person trying to ask for money. Even though you may not have a mathematical formula to say, if I spend 100 bucks on IT, it's going to get me a million dollars in return. Is that how we should approach? 
uh, I resist saying what should, people should do. I, I, I can only give you my, my counsel based on my lessons learned over you know, 30, 40 years in business. Look, you hit the nail on the head on credibility, and I made the point earlier on. You know, one of the things I believe works in significant changes and transformation, or even people in a new role, is build credibility. Because if you're someone that's coming to the table and saying, I'm going to do X, give me some money, I'm going to do X, and you prove that you did what you said you were going to do and gave the return that you said you would return, you're much more likely to get money the second time round and the third time round and the fourth time round. And by the way, you're much more likely to get more money the second time and the third time and the fourth time. Um, and if you're doing it alongside business colleagues, then yes, I agree that that's more likely. I think there is a third element, though, St. Jog, which is think like a CFO. If you think financially about, well, what would a CFO be interested in? If, if I was a shareholder or a financial uh, leader, what were the questions I would ask and how would I want them to, uh, to be answered so that you're making my decision easy? And sometimes it's, are there cheaper ways of getting to the same outcome? Sometimes it's, well, if I didn't do that, what would I not be able to do that drives growth or shareholder value? And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, if you were going to invest this money and I was asking for this return, is that really worth doing? So I think it's worth rehearsing the sorts of questions that the CFO would ask and making sure that between you and the business, you've convinced yourself that's the right thing to do so that when you stand up, you can answer those questions with conviction. And, and you're 100% right on wearing the CFO's hat. The risk, at least some people have shared, is if we purely play based on CFO or CEO, you would always be looking at what's in front of us. But when you want to do a blue ocean type innovation, you don't have any precedence, you have, don't have any data, but you see a writing on the wall because you see writing on the wall, others don't. And such innovations are becoming commonplace because of digital getting embedded in the very DNA of the business. Should we still wear only CFO's hat for us to uh, evaluate those blue ocean type investments? I'm not sure how many investments we'll see the daylight then. Okay, so um, look, I use the CFO as an example because we were talking about limited funding and resourcing. So let's talk about blue sky, blue ocean. Um, you, you made a comment, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I like dealing with facts. Um, you made a comment that's saying, well, you see the possibility there. If you see the possibility, my opinion is you need to be able to articulate what that possibility is. And then you need to be enrolling or convincing other people to also see that possibility. And, and enrolling in my, in my world is speaking in such a way that you inspire other people to be able to do the thing that you're talking about. Because... My opinion is one person believing that they see a vision that something's possible for a business and no one else does is going to be a difficult challenge. You're always going to have to be convincing people. So back to my earlier comment about building a network. If you build a network of people who collectively see that vision, then between you, I'm convinced you'll be able to articulate a value proposition. It is then dependent on the risk appetite of the organization. Do we take a risk on something where we don't have a business case? Or do we put some seed funding in to do a little piece of work to say, hey, that vision, I put a small amount of money, no regrets, but hey, having done that small amount of money and spending, I can now see more tangibly that there is something there. That would be my counsel and that's been my approach, which is rather than spend big on a big vision, spend small, take a decision and move forward. That may to some not come across as the most agile way, 
but it's better than spending years and years trying to convince something of a blue sky vision, which no one wants to listen to. Let's talk about data and analytics function. And this is very interesting that a lot of companies don't rate themselves above five from a scale of one to 10 uh, when it comes to data and analytics maturity. And digital is data, and, and to make digital happen, analytics is critical. But then is there something inherently complex in these functions or this data and analytics function which prevents us from going above the number five from scale on, on a scale of one to 10. And if that's the case, what should an organization be doing to get over this hump? Because we are losing money or we are losing effectiveness of our efforts because this data and analytics function is seems like an untamable beast. Uh, look, I, I live in a business that's that's old and been around for a long time, but survived and thrived because we've been able to, you know, use our external orientation to change the nature of the company. Now, when it comes to data and analytics, it's a topic that's very close to my heart. I used to call it information on demand once another time. We call it informed decision making. People talk about big data analytics reporting. Um, the challenge for companies that have been around for a while is it's, I use the analogy, it's like having a house. I've had my house for a while, it works. Now I want my house to get better and better data and insights. I want to know when my lights are on. I want to know when the music's been left on. I want to know the temperature in every room. Well, that's not a simple thing to do given the way I built my house because my plumbing and wiring wasn't designed for having that near real-time analytics and data. And I use that analogy because that's true for companies. Companies weren't built such that the data layers, the infrastructure, the integration layers could give easily near real-time. It's one of the reasons why digital natives, as I referred to, are able to leverage that. In fact, some digital natives are just about information. They're companies that just use information, and that's how they generate their revenue. We're not one of those. So we've had to step back and look at our whole architecture and, over time, make some changes. And the, the fastest route was to put a layer on top of the infrastructure that we had so that we can suck data from many different places, put it into a repository, slice and dice it, and make that available in a digestible form um, to get more um, uh, more significant, we're also looking at our data and information architecture. And to do that, I've had to bring some new skills in. People who have lived in that world, because my incumbents grew up with my, my house, they may know where the plumbing and the wiring is, but they're not necessarily the best skilled people to rewire the house whilst the house is still working. So those are the two lenses we, we've had for businesses that you know weren't designed for data and analytics. We've had to put some um, layers on top, and we then had to re redesign from the heart and do some surgery as well. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And um, Sanjay, when we talk, and, and you've given a great response to this question. Now, uh, one question does come up in addition to what you've already, uh, where you've already shared your insight is, I'll take it back to the kind of independence and the organizational structure or rather that construct that you create around data and analytics function. Because some people say it should belong to IT. Other people say it should be independent. Third says it should be embedded in the business for it to be most accurate and most um, effective. 
what have you seen based on whatever changes and shifts that you did in your organization? And given that you're trying to introduce this in the digital realm where the data, the velocity and the variety and the veracity, all of that are really complex and challenging. What seems to work for you in that realm? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, uh, Sanjay, while we discussed about how data and analytics function, you went and, you know, you went about fixing it, or at least it's, it's in motion, it's going in the right direction as per your organization's needs. A lot of companies struggle to give this function a place in the organization and the level of independence that it deserves. What would you say would be a set of variables one should consider when they're trying to shape this function, give it a place, and give the accountability and independence so that it can really add value? especially when we are looking in the digital realm where data comes, uh, we are drinking from a fire hose, and then it comes in a lot of variety and everything else. Um, so, so Joe, look, there, there are, as you said, there are multiple different ways of looking at this, and, and you know, I, I don't believe, in my humble opinion, that there's one right answer, but I think there's a couple of things that people might want to be considering. Um, yeah, and the, the other topics are, do I have a chief data officer Data, after all, is the most valuable asset that I've got. Should I put it in IT? Should I distribute it across the business? Should I have it at the C-suite? All of those questions have been buzzing for a while, and we we, we all struggle with the right answer. But in my opinion, it does really depend on the business context that you're in. Um, And I have a point of view for for my organization, um, and my point of view is as follows. Data itself, the, the, the master data, the ownership of the quality of customer data, the quality of material data, needs to be with the business. Why? Because they're the ones living and breathing that every single day. That's, that's opinion number one. I believe that the ownership of data needs to be with the business, and they need to understand the value of that business because they can't do things without that data. They can't close the uh, financial books at the end of the month, or they can't ship um, products, or they can't uh, purchase raw material, they can't make sales if they don't know what the customer's information is. So my view is that should absolutely be owned by the business. The governance of that data and maintaining it and keeping it clean, my opinion is that that needs to be a partnership within with the business and, the, and IT. In my organization, we in IT run that because we tend to be a bit more disciplined in some cases, and we can take a holistic view across all of the functions. So as an enterprise function, I can look across customer data and how it may overlap or map to shipping data and look at supply chain data and how that may map across into product data. So 
the governance and managing and maintaining, I believe, sits with uh, with ISIT. Now, how you structure that and how you, you know what the roles are, that will clearly vary based on where you are in the business and which which dimension of data is important for you. Is procurement data more valuable for you than the material data, or is customer data more valuable for you? So, so we put a structure in place where IT partners with the business, and we have a governance in place, whether it's regional or local or global, depending on the domain, where we ensure that the business understands what those data elements are and what their role and accountability is for managing the data and what our role and accountability is for maintaining the data and so the, the data team that sort of puts the data into the system, looks at the quality of the data, the cleanliness of the data, and reports that out in our organization belongs to me in ISIT um, as a support to the business where I hold them accountable for the quality of the data and for making sure that the, their functions are, are keeping it clean and maintaining it. Let's talk about the... Enterprise performance management, which is essentially a dashboard somebody would want to keep where you're, you're, you're creating some certain benchmarks and metrics, and you're going to use that to direct or monitor the business. A lot of companies say we have that, but it's kind of a little loosey-goosey there, and it's not truly um, an established function with established accountability and responsibility. What did you try to do in this regard? Did you already have it because it was such an old business or did you have to establish it? And then again, talking in the context of digital, what should have shifted in or what should shift in this function, enterprise performance management, for it to be able to effectively help direct the business forward? So that we've always had enterprise performance management of one form or another. As we continue to transform, the, the metrics and the KPIs that we need continue to move. Um, so once upon a time, it was about, you know, when we had the world's largest shipping fleet, it was about, you know, where are the ships and where do they need to be and how do I sort of orchestrate them around the planet? We don't do that anymore. Uh, so now it's really about, uh, you know, which customers uh, which categories, what's the growth in those categories. Uh, we still need to ship products, and so that it continues to be about where is our product, what should we be manufacturing uh, one month versus another month, and how is that in sync with what our customers are buying. So continue to look at performance management. The enterprise part of it continues to shift. Um, the challenge, if I talk about that, is not so much the metrics. I think we're clear as an organization as a whole what the outcome metrics are that we're looking for, whether that's market share growth or whether that's margin or whether that's cost, uh, competitiveness in terms of um, um, the, the, the people and non-people cost of running our business, whether it's the ratios of HR people to employer or otherwise. Those metrics are well-known, well-defined, but it's more about how do we make that information available to the right people in a timely fashion? So to talk about your digital point, the challenge I think we continue to have is given the system landscape we've got and the evolution of the technologies, how do we make the right information available to the right person at the right time to allow them to do their job in near real time? And that comes back to the previous conversation we had about data ownership, the data architecture, and the fact that if I have a house that was built a particular way, how do I have to rebuild that so that I can get, you know, technologies to enable me to know 
where things are near real time. I use the example of, are my lights on? Can I control my heating remotely? Can I open my door remotely? Um, those are the sorts of technologies that we're having to put in place such that enterprise performance management moves at the pace that digital businesses move because traditionally it hasn't. Talk about governance structure. Uh, you, you did mention in the context of data and analytics, you would have governance. But then here we are talking about governance across the board, across business functions. And that would drive it. So now if, if even though you were brick and mortar and you're now introducing digital, are you fundamentally rethinking governance for the whole business? And if yes, where are you looking to introduce Technology enablement. So I, I wouldn't say we've changed governance wholesale. We, you know, we're still the business that we used to be. Food ingredients go into food products, and food products are consumed locally. So, you know, you know, we still need to be in the regions, uh, working with customers in the regions to solve the problems that they've got around food, health, and wellness. So, fundamentally, we're, we're organised by region. And then we have a global overlay so that we get the economies of scale. That hasn't changed. Whilst the nature of some of our business changed, we have two divisions. We run the business that way. So structurally, that governance is in place. But in terms of your question about to enable clarity, simplicity, quick decision-making, uh, we have made a number of changes to that. So uh, we try and get decision-making as close to the market as possible. So we've done work in terms of clarifying what those decision rights are and moving approval levels closer to the market so that people don't have to go up to global for every approval. And we've done that by simply going function by function, decision matrix by decision matrix, funding by funding, and saying which of these are we going to allow to be made closest to the market without us having people making decisions that break the global model. Uh, so that's one thing on decision models. Uh, on authorizations and approval, we've workflowed that as much as possible. So we don't have to have emails and documents flowing backwards and forwards, but we can use workflow. Simple example, travel and expense management. Once upon a time, you had paper receipts, you had to fill in a form, ship it off to somewhere, it got approved. It's all now digitized. You get your receipt, you take a picture of it, you workflow it, it gets approved payment goes straight into your, into your account. So there's a digitization of certain processes that allow simplification, faster decision-making, easier authorization. On behalf of the show and our listeners, thank you so much, Sanjay, for sharing in-depth details about how you've turned around data and not Lyle, along, of course, working with your business leaders. And you have worked at this whole idea about digital operating model and which indeed I am hoping it is delivering results for you. So thanks so much for your insights. Thanks, Angel. It's been a pleasure. And uh, listeners, hope you enjoyed it. Please like us on Facebook, search for CTN, CIO Talk Network, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and join our LinkedIn group. Thank you again for listening to this segment on CTN. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. 